0: Hello, it's Czech Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Geneva Skeen, an artist usually based in Los Angeles. She's released works on Room 40, Dragon's Eye, Touch... Her most recent long-form work, Turning of the Day, was released on the fabulous line imprint. And as we discuss at the beginning of the show, it's a work designed to be listened to at half attention. Geneva's work has so much, to my ears anyway, awareness of the listening body than the presence of the listener, what they bring to the experience of listening. There's so much ambiguity with what she puts forward sonically that explodes in all kinds of potential directions in the listener's head. On turning of the day there's a sound that resembles almost exactly this draft that we often get in my house on windy days that creates this kind of low revving humming sound as it kind of rattles and vibrates the door frame. There's a sound on towing of the day that reminds me of that. It sounds, like I say, like a motor revving. It almost sounds like something more sinister at points. There's a sense that it's more than itself. And that's the thing with Geneva's music. There's sounds that project outward in all directions. They're more than what is presented partly because of what Geneva is putting in and partly because of what the listener is pulling down. And she's great to talk to. She's picked three awesome records. I loved hearing her talk about them. I think you will too. You can head over to genevaskene.com for more information on Geneva and to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for all those usual links. Thank you for the lovely feedback on the show as always. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy this one too. This is Geneva Skeen on Crucial Listening. Hello Geneva, welcome to Crucial Listening.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: Thanks for coming on. So you're here to talk about three important albums. Before we get stuck into those, I wanted to ask about your new release online, Turning of the Day, which on the record description mentions it's a challenging long form work in two parts meant to be listened to in full, but at half attention. Now half attention, I think such an interesting and provocative phrase in all kinds of directions. I want to know, to begin with, why it appealed to you to work with the idea of half-attention in listening?
1: Mm, That's a great question. Um, hmm. I think that listening attention is a special kind of attention, and it is boundless in a way. You know, our day-to-day listening as it relates to functioning and perception. Uh, is quite muted compared to what our listening capacity is. Um, And a lot of my work is interested in what is the sort of boundary between being overwhelmed by sensation and listening and being out of touch with the world around you And the pleasure that can be found in being overwhelmed as much as there is also a kind of repulsion in being overwhelmed. So (laughs) um, half attention is a very subjective uh, request of a listener. It asks them to be aware of themselves uh, as they're listening in a way that like just telling someone to listen to a record could mean anything like Mm -hmm. people listen to music in all different kinds of ways and so it asks sort of preemptively someone to think about their attentiveness to listening and then it says okay dial that back to some to some level of like less than what you think it is but it's I I realize now (laughs) it's a kind of conundrum that I've asked someone to pay attention to something (laughs) and then to kind of halfway ignore it (laughs) yeah yeah But I like that paradox. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, this record can be overwhelming in its tension and quietness to Uh an extent so on one hand i'm sort of letting the listener off the hook to uh (laughs) let their mind kind of pre-associate or do whatever like i don't care if you're writing an email not really but like you're gonna eventually come back to it if you know that you're at half attention and then i think the last thing i'll say about it is that i struggle with the genre and word ambient Uh um, especially as I feel it has kind of become a catch-all that includes a variety of different sounds with a variety of different intentions from the composer's perspective and yet the sort of shorthand understanding of ambient seems to nudge its way into like calm music or like lo-fi beats to study to or (laughs) 60s you know 60 cycle hum Uh and things to zone out to completely or that will be some kind of balm or solve or curative for a very um challenging world Mm -hmm. and i don't try to make work that is a balm or a curative for a challenging world i Actively seek to point to that in the work or at least point to a listener's perception of their own I don't want to necessarily just say anxiety but like pointing to the things that are real that are not just safe that are safe but also not safe or things that are encroaching things that are impending things that have happened things that are happening Um, so Mm. it's meant to the the phrase half attention is meant to sort of shake you out of the ambient category and instead think about being active and not passive. Um, I don't care if you lie on the floor and listen to it. It might be kind of nice if you have a subwoofer, but like (laughs) you're still putting your attention actively and not just letting the thing wash over you or perhaps you're oscillating between letting the thing wash over you and then crawling into the sound kind of so Mm. yeah
0: nice another section of that description actually says that it's written this is expanding on what you've just said as well but it's written for interstitial time written for dawn the small hours in which we churn on thoughts the graveyard shifts of our minds how do you compose for that? I mean how is that reflected in the way that you approach putting this music together?
1: Um, Well there's a literal kind of component to it which is I was invited by someone in South Korea like several years ago to make a piece for this global like 24-hour online piece that was never actualized, um, but he was assigning different times of day, like half-hour slots, to people to compose for, and then in in theory, this piece would play 24 hours a day online, um, and whatever time slot your personal computer's clock was at would sync up with the time slot that it was, you know, that the composer had composed for, and I chose 11:30. PM to midnight because I think I like really, again, exploring this idea of anticipation, of impending change, of being sort of heightened in my awareness of something coming. Um, And so I kind of sort of started to sketch out this piece back then for half an hour. And I think the album is still exactly half an hour. I can't remember off the top of my head, but Yeah. It's meant to trace the sort of moments of watching a clock, knowing that something is changing, knowing that something somewhat arbitrary is changing, but like that (laughs) in your psyche, it is still real. Like it's no longer today. It's now today or it's no longer, you know, there's a switch that happens kind of. So that's kind of how this project started. And I think tonally it reflects that sort of long um, temporal slowness that happens when you start paying attention to the time. Like, I don't know if you meditate, but like when you start meditating or early in your meditation practice, time becomes super slippery and you're like, you set a timer for five minutes and that meditation goes really quickly. But then you try ramping up and you set a timer timer for 10 minutes and you're like, Oh my God, this is forever. (laughs) Yeah. This is forever. (laughs) And, um, that is a very real feeling and it's an uncomfortable feeling. Um, but it is like opening up a kind of internal, Psychic expanse of going back and forth, oscillating again between being aware of feeling uncomfortable, that discomfort disappearing or dissipating, and then circling back around again, and it has this like cycle of like, okay, no, okay, no, (laughs) Um, and then you know, part two of that record is a, a kind of a release from that where something starts to happen and you're like, oh, okay. Okay. It's today now. Uh Um, but the cycle comes back in a different form. Um, repetition comes back in a different form. And that's sort of just the banality of time passing, I guess, Mm -hmm. when your attention is only really on that. And it also reflects I think tonally the kinds of feelings that you have, or at least I have, um, when I can't sleep. Um, and I'm just like, Mm. I want to be asleep. I'm trying to sleep. My mind is cycling or racing or getting stuck on banal things, things that actually don't matter, but are a stand in for something that probably does matter that I'm trying not to pay attention to. Uh Um, And so I, you know, I, composing for that, technically speaking, is about really like taking sounds that I have from my house at that hour, um, taking sounds from like my, my own body, my own breath during those hours, and then really like pulling them apart. Um, In their component parts, I would like pull them out and stretch them. Um, but then I would compile them and then stretch that out again and then pull it out again, stretch the parts again. So it's sort of like taffy pulling in a way.
0: One thing that I think is most pronounced for me in listening to this is the use of low frequencies. I think when I think of something which deals with those interstitial periods, um, often in you know other pieces that I've heard when dealing with those kind of I, I, I don't know like semi states is like traces of sound and things kind of you know wisps at the edges the low frequencies are really amazing because they feel like a real weight dragging at the the, the base or, or, or anchoring this uh, throughout the entire thing um, mm. t- tell me uh, this is a super vague question Tell me about the use of low frequencies in this piece, because yeah, they feel like at many points and depends where my concentration is. But at many points, they're the thing that I think I'm paying the most attention to consciously when I'm when I'm listening.
1: Mm. Well, actually, can I ask you a question before I answer that? Because I'm curious yeah. if that's where your attention focuses. Are you... How are you... How have you listened to this work, like, on headphones or speakers? And how has that changed your attention to those low frequencies?
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I listened once in my studio where I am currently, which is in the garden. It's like a little hut, which is very separate from the house and feels very private. And I listened over, like, reference headphones. And that Mm. felt very... That's what I, I also, as well, you got the fact that I think that was the first time I listened to it and became extremely aware instantly because that's the first time I'd encountered it. On the second time, mm-hmm. I was in my living room, which tends to be like a space of um, slightly more vigilance because my boy was asleep. I'm always aware of the fact that because he's a light sleeper, mm-hmm. I might need to go tend to him. Um, mm-hmm. I was hearing the bass frequencies but through headphones which are perhaps a little bit more pronounced in their transmission of bass frequencies um mm. mm-hmm. i think they felt more there's an energy that i got from them when i was listening to them in the house which was slightly darker i think than in the privacy of the shepherd's hut uh mm. and i don't know what that is could it could be mm. more shadow's on the wall in my living room which I was ingesting passively without realizing it and kind of swirling that into what I was listening to uh listening incredibly hmm. yeah interesting vague answer to your question but yeah it's interesting <laughs> know, to think they're... about it
1: yeah I mean the like that's it's interesting that you listened on headphones and that you still felt a shift in tone and to go back to your question, but I'll come back to what you were saying, uh, and maybe tell you speak about why I ask you that question <laughs> is like l- low frequencies to me. Um, well, listening to me is a full body experience. Um, I think that I talk a lot about deprioritizing the I because mm. I think that. Um, The eye is associated with reading in a way that works with linear time, that is uh, sort of held in a kind of supremacy. And I don't think it's necessarily all of the ways in which we experience time. Um, And it's certainly not the way other cultures have documented time or spoken about time or conceptualized time so we live in a sort of very visually dominated culture and reading and language is is really the primary way that we operate uh, information uh, as it is read through the eye and so I am looking for ways to put people uh, well it's I'm looking for ways to put myself back in my body uh, and looking for ways in which I can listen more fully um, with all of the capacity that my body has that I that I have never trained or, uh, was never trained in or, um, have, it's just this latent capacity that isn't necessary most of the time in day to day life. Um, in the 21st century, if yeah, we're in the 21st century. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, and so low frequencies is really, um, an, Kind of an obvious way, I think, to get me there. Uh, I really associate higher frequencies with the cerebral, um, with being in the head and being with low frequencies. Uh, I mean, I guess that's also why I asked how you listened if it was on headphones or on monitors because um, with monitors, you will get like a vibrating of your desk or your chair or the wall or the floor if you're listening to this record um, with decent enough bass response speakers. And it's so interesting, like listening with headphones, I feel like you might get more of a sense of pressure and pressure, as opposed to vibration, is a different kind of sensation. Um, pressure is kind of what we do to distract ourselves from pain. Like if you get a cut, you put pressure on it, because your nervous system can really only feel one uh, sensation at a time. Mm. Um, and so one of the one of the reasons, among many, that you do that is to distract yourself from the pain of having severed a nerve or whatever. Um, And so getting pressure around your head, especially, or or even in your chest, which is quite close to your head, I imagine might exacerbate the kind of anxiety um, that you mentioned you, or or darkness that you mentioned you (laughs) felt. And, you know, like there's a ton of different contexts happening. Like you're more vigilant because you're thinking about your kid and uh, there's shadows and you're not in a garden and you're not by yourself. And um, so like all of those contexts, all of those situations are super interesting to me. And that's the weird thing about releasing an album is you just sort of let it out into the world and like... People are going to listen to it however they're going to listen to it. And if you're lucky enough to have people listen to things multiple times, it's going to shift, um, in this like very chemical way. Um, but yeah, yeah, low frequencies, I really love. And I think, uh, some people have very different relationships to low frequencies. I think some people are very, uh, are given a kind of anxiety, um, about low frequencies and somehow find high frequencies to be more, um, maybe not soothing, but legible. And I mean, yeah. that has to do with the sort of reading thing or the cerebral thing. But for me, it's definitely like low frequencies. I want to put my body all over the wall or like, I want to <laughs> touch everything that is happening. Um, and really f- hear the sound through my skin and hear the sound through the room that I'm in, um, hear the room respond to the frequencies. Like uh, there's just a lot of tactile capacity that's opened up in low frequencies, which we don't, don't always get. Um, you know, speaking the human voice doesn't dip into the low frequencies that we have the capacity to hear um either orally or here physically um i mean mm. through skin so voice always kind of cuts across low frequencies or bass music in a way that uh i also think is really interesting um you can talk over like a bass set yes. and still kind of understand someone in a way that like you're not going to be able to talk through a noise show you know <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah absolutely I remember hearing my own nasal breathing and those around me during a Thomas Kona set.
1: Mm, which yeah. Which
0: like all notched out, <laughs> you know, at high frequencies, which is amazing. Um, Geneva, this release is really cool. I need to listen to it over speakers, clearly. So when I get a chance to crank it to the point where things might fall <laughs> off tables, I'll absolutely be doing that. And people should definitely check it out too. It's on line writes on the line bank camp. yes a good line place imprint to go line imprint excellent um great well geneva let's talk about your important records you've picked three as per <laughs> the instruction and one question i like to ask is about how you contemplated the word important when coming to your list so was there a way that you understood that word or a place you took it in order to come up with the selection that you did
1: Oh gosh. Yes. Um there certainly is. And I kind of struggled with it for a while, to be quite honest. Uh-huh. And uh it's you know, it's it's like asking someone what their favorite color is <laughs> if they <laughs> You're like, Well it depends, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um but my train of thought went important for the audience that reads this blog that might listen to my music question mark (laughs) no 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 don't do that uh important for uh who i am as a musician question mark Mm, okay maybe like important to me as a as a person as like a woman as uh someone who grew up the way I grew up okay maybe like think about that um important for like me as an academic i don't know so i went a lot of Mm. different directions with this and i just made a really long list to be honest (laughs) and then i started editing it down (laughs) nice (laughs) yeah i had to do some editing and that's kind of how i function a lot of times these days i just sort of give up on editing before i do the thing i just start with doing the thing and then editing so
0: i think that's a great idea at least you get rolling You haven't got the paralysis of like, well, uh, I I must come to three, you know, in an immaculate form before I... I I don't know. It's quite quite an intimidating foot to put forward, right? Um.
1: it really is intimidating so good on you for <laughs> <laughs> God, but makes ultimately weird. I was like oh this is actually an interesting combination of things that I feel like represents me well in all of these facets mm-hmm. um, and it could have been a couple of different other combinations of things but I sort of settled on this combination because I was like this is definitely where I'm at now and it'll also i feel like holds the longest lasting representation of me in the past maybe like five years
0: great answers so let's go with whichever one you want to talk about first have you got a preference
1: um yeah why don't we go from most cerebral to least cerebral in a way (laughs) um Oh, now I regret saying that because...
0: <laughs> I was looking at the list like... <laughs> I feel like i have miscategorized.
1: Let's go in the way that I think we should go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's start with music of the cash. <laughs>
0: nice. Okay, awesome. Uh, so Ursula K. Le Guin and Todd Barton. So why is this one important
1: to you? This is important to me because it is so thorough in its consideration of world building, Mm -hmm. it is so believable in its fantasy or, or maybe not fantasy, but in its speculative fiction. Um, It's so considered in terms of building um, a world that is plausible and timeless and, not appropriative, mm-hmm. but based in real history, real life, real things that have happened on Earth, um, and I think she does specify that the cash like, live it on Earth. I believe, mm-hmm. and I know that most of the recordings are taken from Marin County, um, but like, there is—it's so successful mm-hmm. in its and. I don't mean timelessness in a sort of like classic kind of way, like an icon kind of way. Like it feels without time. It's atemporal. Um, It feels like, yeah, it could totally be 5,000 years from now, or this could have been 5,000 years ago, or it could honestly be right now somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's remarkable. Like it was made in the eighties. The reissue is like, it sounds wonderful. It sounds Maybe like it was made in the 80s, but it doesn't, that doesn't really matter in the work. Like the work really just stands on its own in its own world. And I i am so like impressed by the audio world that's created. Um, mm-hmm. It's so multidimensional and I, and I admit I have not read always coming home the book that it is based off of I flipped through it but it is gargantuan but it is so rich (laughs) it is as rich as the like physical reissue is I have the I have the physical reissue on vinyl and it has so many fun things in it like this amazing Mm. bookmark and these folds out fold outs and um illustrations and uh like Ursula Le Guin, a true collaborator, like really, really special release. I, I can't think of a whole lot of things like this.
0: No, sure. Um, do you get like the alphabet and the, um, like the vocabulary in that, in that physical reissue as well?
1: You get some, I believe I wanted to look at it, but I don't have it with me here in New York. I have it at home in LA. And, um, so I was like trying to look at photographs but um i can't remember if you get the alphabet but i did read a funny anecdote about the alphabet is that like she was already working (laughs) she was already working with todd barton on the recording for the cassette um the original cassette which was like just strapped to the book talk about excess and like (laughs) baroque baroque kind of production values (laughs) um And at some point they were talking about the instruments and they were talking about the songs and Todd Barton was like, "Do the cash speak English? And she just goes, dang it. (laughs) And she like disappears for like another three months to develop an alphabet and develop a whole like uh, codex and language. And so, you know, like, I don't know. To me, this is like, Tolkien can take a back seat. I think like (laughs) I was just thinking, yeah. Wow. uh, she I love I also love that like she wanted to make an album of their songs, but like somehow the language part was like the last thought she had. Yeah.
0: Isn't that amazing? <laughs> like it
1: was so re- it was so real for her. I think maybe um, yeah that actually figuring out what the language was was like. Oh, I I already know what the language is. Oh no, of course I have to transcribe this <laughs> and like document it and develop it. So yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, do you remember how you first
1: came to discover this record? I was. I bought it from Pete Swanson at a record swap wow Um, yeah like it was a record swap at Zebulon I think 2018 yeah 2018 Um, maybe late 2017 anyway it doesn't matter Uh, I was at Zebulon in Los Angeles um, in Atwater Village and I went to a record swap and I was talking to Richard Chartier actually who released Turning of the Day Uh and he was posted up next to Pete Swanson and I was spending money like I don't care and (laughs) I just saw like the name Le Guin peeking out of a corner of the stack and I was like, say what yeah and I pull it up and it's just like music of the cash what but like Ursula Le-, Le Guin made a record what right. I didn't know who Todd Barton was at the time and I like look at the back and it's got all of this like amazing text and didactic and I and then under as an undergrad I studied critical theory and I did some ethnography projects and I was like oh hell yeah this is gonna be cool (laughs) and I just bought it I didn't know really anything about it and then I got home and I opened it and it was just like Christmas time I was like oh my god there's so many things in here like yeah yeah. and yeah I listen to it quite often
0: I think this is always an unfair question to ask about an important record because I'm sure the answer is all of it but if you think back to the record now What are some particularly Protrusive moments that come to mind Just as we're talking that are like Oh, that's awesome, I love that
1: Um, I love the flow Of it overall Um, it feels Ethnographic in the term, in terms of like the time that you're spending with each track, mm. um, in, ter- in terms of the space that's created and the world that's created. So the recordings of crickets, like fire crackling, storytelling. You hear a conversation between presumably a woman's voice and presumably a man's voice, uh, and then you know you establish this sense of community and your presence, like as a witness in this community. And then it launches into Long Song, I think is the track name. And that is just, it's just gorgeous. It is just like a hauntingly gorgeous track Mm. with all of these vocal layers and shifting keys and um, long singing. That's what it's called. It's track eight, Um, long singing. And it's just like you get launched into another layer of the world that you've been invited into and it feels... Uh, kind of transcendent and really special. Uh, Mm. I just think the flow flow is really remarkable.
0: Yeah. I think what surprised me about this, because I kind of read about it first and then listened, was the presence of something which I guess resembles a more organized and premeditated music than I was expecting. There's one track that's almost got like a trip-hoppy beat going through it. Um, which I don't mm-hmm, know what I was ready for, but mm-hmm. that that's it was really, really interesting and then as as I pondered it, I was like, well yeah, why not? Like why why can't <laughs> this community be producing something like this? I mean, do the more overtly musical sections like that resonate with you as well?
1: Yeah, I think it like really lends itself to the atemporality of it. Like uh-huh. yeah, like you're saying, like, why not? It could be in the future. Maybe trip-hop already happened. Like, (laughs) in the 21st century, we certainly reference, you know, music that was very old or, you know, 500 years ago, sure, but, like, also older than that. Um, Mm. And Gregorian chant gets sampled in trip-hop. I mean, like, this crossover of time that happens in music where things are identifiable but you can always make a cover too right like you could cover a Gregorian chant and yeah. make it today I mean what's to stop you and yeah I think that like it's it's interestingly blended um, I also love like the quality of certain sounds, like the, the snapping and clapping um, mm. in I forget which track. I think it's in the first half where it's just women singing that sort of devolves into laughter. Yeah. Um, I'm like so curious about how that those elements were recorded, the human elements that were recorded, because um, it's got to be indicative to a certain extent of the recording equipment also it's like those are snaps I can tell those are snaps but like those don't sound like snaps in the real world and they certainly don't sound like snaps as they're recorded now but I guess I'd have to go look into 1985 recordings of snaps right. I don't know like <laughs> what choices were made in mixing this that um, she directed I guess is a, is a really that's a, that's a question for Todd probably but yeah
0: yeah and speaking of Ursula as well what's your relationship like with her output generally have you read many of her books or you know was this an initiation or
1: uh it's not an initiation for sure um I am super ashamed to admit I have read very few Ursula Le Guin books I read um what is the one that I'm thinking of that It's about this sort of like dream time. There's an apocalyptic event. The the main protagonist is a a guy, the Lathe of Heaven. I read the Lathe of Heaven and I love the Lathe of Heaven and I love dream work and I love the sort of like loss of reality that happens. Hmm. Um, I never read uh, Tales from Earthsea, but I am familiar with her sort of personhood, yes. um, and and her investment in um, feminism, and her investment in uh, environmentalism, and her real belief in a sustainable world that is trying to move against uh, capitalism and consumerism and constant obsessive technologies, I think she says um, and presence and listening and, uh, her relationship to gender, I think is really interesting. Um, Mm. yeah, I mean, she's a a real, she's a real badass. And so I (laughs) love her and I am ashamed to say that like, I'm actually not super deeply familiar with all of her, her work, but, um, she lives as a figure, rent-free in my head, as they say. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, same here. I've read The Dispossessed and absolutely loved it last year. And um, But that's it. And this is definitely a nice nudge for me to pick up that thread again. Um, yeah. If we were going to play a little snippet of one of these tracks now, do you have a preference, something that might give... A little bit of insight.
1: I mean, long singing is my favorite track on this record and that and I and I love voice. I love using voice. I love using multiple voices. I have a I have a choir background. So <laughs> um so yeah, that one is definitely my favorite.
0: Geneva, let's go to your second important record. So again, you give me the name of it and then a bit about why it's important to you as well.
1: Okay, I. this is such a like s- small release thing. I I guess the name of it is Vessel, um, but I always think of it in my head as the Roy Montgomery Grouper split EP. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure on the answer to that either and I don't think there's even a clear answer online.
1: Yeah, and like... Um, I own I, I, I had it on my like Discogs want list for forever. And I'm not a Discogs person. This is a disclaimer. <laughs> like this is maybe the second thing I ever bought on Discogs out of maybe four things. Right. Um and I I really wanted this. And uh I I have a slight object fetish. I have a record collection, but like there's something about this thing that i just really wanted to have closer to me Mm. than freaking youtube and i wanted to carry it around with me um and so yeah i have one of the copies i think i bought on either discogs maybe it was ebay who knows um any case i sought it out really aggressively which is unusual for me um it is so beautiful like it's just so beautiful I love Roy Montgomery's work. I love like Jaguar Ma, I uh, like a piece of stuff from the eighties and um grouper i mean duh like right yeah, it, you know um yeah <laughs> uh what's i what's there to say about that without me sounding obvious or cliche but like i love i love grouper it's beautiful, like that shit makes me cry um, Right, yeah. In a good way, in a good way. And this record, I love the pairing of the two of them. I don't know who initiated it. I love that they didn't collaborate. They were just like, let's just, I'll do one side and you do the other side and that will be enough. Yeah. Um, and it still feels like a collaboration. It feels like a conversation between size A and B. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's some nice, there's obviously some nice overlap in terms of sound and timbre and tone mood between the two of them they both work in this kind of like surging tempo where things like pick up and they pick up and then they do like fade up and then they pick up and they fade they both have these cycles that are ebbing and flowing they're very watery um but they're also I guess a couple of the tracks probably have time signatures if you wanted to transpose it, but um, it also makes uh, Roy Montgomery's works on this record make me think of Satie in terms of the like mm. uh, compo- composer's choice in a way. Like It's time to move forward. It's time to slow down. He feels like he's really, or rather his guitar feels like really an important part of his body. Mm-hmm. Um, they both really take advantage of their equipment, their gear to make a really specific signature sound. Um in different ways, but like I love how based up and trebled down the first track is on the Roy Montgomery side. Uh-huh. And um yeah, Pressed Bloom is a heartbreaking track of of uh beauty i was listening to it the other day actually you know in prep for this and i was taking a walk around where i am in the hudson valley kind of almost sunset and like these clouds of gnats were like dancing in the sunlight uh, like in tandem with the music and i was just like transported and then i was walking around listening to pressed bloom and just like smelling these flowers these magnolias and these blossoms and in the humidity it's just so perfumed and i it's a really synesthetic record i think for me it's very perfumed mm. um
0: yeah for sure yeah um you may have already answered this i mean i i wasn't really familiar with roy montgomery when this came out but i was very into grouper and so in my head this got Immortalised as just a grouper EP I completely, sorry Mm -hmm. Roy But I completely like in memory Completely disregarded his 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 side had not actually sat And listened to it until now Um, It's amazing to hear Both sides in company And Mm -hmm. responding And reflecting to each other As you've said Um, What Do you think the two sides Gain from being in each other's company like they could have I guess easily come out as two standalone Mm. uh things but what is it about this this response between them that maybe gives them additional an additional something
1: yeah cool question um I don't know maybe it's like like reading a full staff like a full musical staff I feel like Roy Montgomery's part of it really, even with all of everything I just said about like um, no time signature, I feel like the drone and the um, the particular strike of his strumming um, Mm. sets up a kind of foundation and a structure that Grouper um, sits in the treble clef, right? And, and I don't uh-huh. mean this in terms of freq- I don't mean this in terms of frequency or, or pitch um, or key. I mean it in terms of like a full orchestral arrangement, kind of like yeah. together. Even though they are not listening to them simultaneously, it feels much fuller because there's this structure that can be set up. Or if you listen to side B first, or who, who I don't even know whose side is whose. Like it's so complementary. It's very yin yang. It's very like. Um, Grouper fills in all of this structure with these washes and this cassette tape decay yeah. and her voice that's you know delayed out to oblivion <laughs> fills in these vo- like these pockets that Roy sets up in, in the strumming of his like sort of Raga-esque uh, guitar drones um, and I just think it's like such a cute, it's a cute pairing and it's an effective (laughs) pairing and like it just makes me happy in like a weird way because there's so many like sort of yeah like I said heartbreaking moments on this record um where they really Mm. pull at heartstrings but it's, it's it just it just really makes it's so balanced it makes me really content
0: yeah the one track that came right rushing back for me was hold the way and I realized I know that track really really well even though i've not heard it in like eight years which is always a nice mm. sign right when something just um unpacks a box in your head and it's like oh here you go um oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but the kind of chorus section of that one is where she's just doing an r uh, um foregoes uh-huh. anything uh-huh. oh yeah oh, it's my God. <laughs> absolutely exquisite it's like yeah amazing I absolutely love it yeah it's gorgeous
1: yeah it's it's so it's it's like a really real present feeling yes. it's lacking it's lacking melodrama it's just it's very very human yeah both yeah sides.
0: yeah totally so you mentioned that you were into Roy's work in the 80s you had some background with with Roy I'm intrigued as to If you remember how you came into both of these artists like how did you discover Roy's work how did you discover Liz's work
1: oh okay good question um so Roy's work came to me through a colleague of mine a friend of mine in Los Angeles I'm part of this collective called volume Uh um and my friend and uh collective co-collective member I guess um colleague uh Jared Baxter put it on a playlist or on a mix for uh we used to have a regular show on K-Chung which was like a very local AM originally pirate radio station in Los Angeles in Chinatown and I just heard it and I was like dude what's this (laughs) and he was like oh yeah you should check out Roy Montgomery he's from New Zealand Um, I mean, to me, like, uh, I found Temple 4, um, which is a release on Cranky, I guess in the 90s, actually. Yeah, why did I say 80s? I don't know. Time, obviously, (laughs) if there's a running theme today, it's that time is kind of, like, weird to me. Um... (laughs) So anyway, yeah, Temple Four came out on Cranky in ninety six. Um, I listened to it and it's just like uh, such a big, big listen, and yet it's really simply composed in terms of instrumentation. I don't know, I in my head, like Roy Montgomery was this like huge epic figure, and I think he I think he is, and I, I think his work is so cool and I was so happy when there was like a big release of a bunch of work of his um a couple years ago yeah uh but at the same time i'm like i followed roy montgomery on instagram and he followed me back and i was like what (laughs) (laughs) all right uh yeah but like uh Ma is such a cool um cool track and yeah everything on temple four is really awesome and I don't know. I just, it's kind of present for me. It's, uh, I like guitars. I'm not good at guitar. So I feel like in my head, I play guitar kind of like that with altered, altered yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not good at like playing music, even though I played, I had probably (laughs) decades worth of lessons in me and like, I just, I've never been good at playing music. So I just like look at an instrument and like find out what sounds it makes. Mm. that's kind of how I play guitars I just like find a fun tuning and then use it as a percussive instrument almost like yeah um or as a drone instrument that has two instruments within it and grouper I feel like must have come to me around the same time I definitely had heard of her before um clearing is that the record ruins okay 2014 ruins yeah 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 That's the record. That was the first, like, real record that I sat with. But I knew about, like, dragging a dead deer up the hill and heavy water and things like this. But um, Ruins uh, really got me hooked. Uh, And then I started going through the back catalog. I don't know. It's like a kind of austere, neutral, powerful femininity that I hear in Grouper's work. Not to, you know bang on this some more but there's like really kind of atemporality I like decay how it happens in her work in tandem with the liveness of her voice which simultaneously then like decays immediately Mm. Um, place is always really palpable for me in her records like it it sounds like the northwest it sounds wet Um, she uses field recordings on ruins a lot and I think she recorded that one in in Portugal um, on a residency and it sounds like summer and it sounds but like a cold summer i think that's like a i think it's kind of uh not to not to reduce it but i think it's a breakup record and it totally sounds like that too and Mm. um yeah what it's like being alone in the summer and the rain and it's just sort of like uh, i'm with myself okay i'm with myself
0: yeah Um, yeah
1: yeah and She's awesome. I've been in her proximity a couple of times and I always fangirl and get quiet and stupid and never say anything, but (laughs) I've had dreams where I get to play a show in Portland and like groupers there and she's like, Hey, just come play in my garage. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) she holds a psychic presence. (laughs) Uh,
0: Have you seen her play live?
1: yes I saw her play live for an ambient church thing um, uh, let's see winter 2018 uh-huh um, it was in a big um, Gothic Cathedral in Los Angeles there's like one or two of those and she was playing it was December it was like right before Christmas and it, she was playing appropriately for that time period and it was super oh, super that quiet super super quiet really trying to use the reverb of the room it was such a delicate performance which struck me in relationship to the heaviness of her music Mm -hmm. this felt like you know if she if she had like a harp string this was the performance where she's playing like the top single harp string um it was very reverent uh and I don't say that just because it was in a church I think it you know you had to lean in to hear you really talk about like really having to pay attention uh was good yeah
0: Geneva, let's go to your final important record. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> yeah, if you give me the name of it and then a bit about why it's important, let's do it.
1: Uh, I chose Swans' "The Great Annihilator." I had to figure out a way to work in something crushing and aggressive into this selection because that is a big—that's a big thing for me to balance in some ways like the headiness of some of the things that I'm trying to do um also when I use my voice like I'm trying to I I have a pretty decent range but I end up singing in a pretty like mezzo soprano range and so I try to balance that with some crushing stuff and (laughs) my sense of crushing stuff comes from swans it is like the Loudest shit I've ever heard. I love. Yeah. I mean, if there's one place I'm gonna be willing to blow my eardrums out, it's gonna be a Swan show. It just, um, I, I'm gonna look back on this in 20 years and regret it, but um, maybe I won't. I don't know. Uh, I love. It's it's a place. Talk about like being really physically present in the music. Mm. Seeing A Swan Show live is like, my whole body vibrates. Um, I'm like, laughing at Michael Jara, like writhing like a snake, sweating, and then I'm like, laughing at watching um, what's his name? Olaf, I think, playing the pedal steel chewing gum like a maniac oh, and then yeah. I'm like feeling this aggression in my chest which is really present this sort of anger um, that has no where, nowhere to go like this sort of impotent anger that can only be expressed through entering a trancy state and Great Annihilator I chose specifically because Jarbo is still in it and mm. her presence on that record is my favorite one. Um, her vocal range really goes into a lot of directions like it's Diamondical loss in certain tracks and then it's like really her sort of diva jazz background training in another track. Um, Everybody is lending themselves to the tone of each song as fully as they can, as expressively as they can. There's so much color happening in this wall of blackness um, mm. and grayness. And I love the album artwork. I love Mind, Body, Light, Sound. It's sort of ecstasy that it reaches. It's a huge record. I mean, I think a lot of people criticize it maybe because it's not as cathartic and chaotic and aggressive as like Filth or early, earlier Swan stuff. But like this line between, you know accessible as far as swans is ever going to be accessible to a broad audience Uh and still like agitated and heavy and crushing um i think they really it's like chef's kiss if (laughs) this is a podcast but i'm doing chef's kiss right now um yeah 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 yeah, it's it's a good one
0: yeah i feel like um because this is like the penultimate one right before they they stopped Mm -hmm. for a long while I hope that's right but soundtracks for the blind oh gosh I hope that's correct was the one I think that came out after this which was a basically a huge purging it seemed of the excess energy that they needed to get rid of in order to shut that project down for a bit so this kind of feels like to me the point at which that they were very aligned and had reached a point of like assimilating a lot of what had really characterized what they were doing you know mm-hmm. it's interesting that it would be kind of criticized for not being as brutal as, as filth or something when it's like well they've done that you know they've been as brutal as filth very much on filth this this feels like a very streamlined iteration of swans right like before they before mm-hmm. they say, okay, we've we've kind of nailed being swans, so mm-hmm. let's, yeah. let's park it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's something that I appreciate about the project is that it has you know it keeps reincarnating itself, re- reincarnating itself, and uh, it knows. Eh, oh, well, it's debatable, I guess, but like <laughs> for the most part, Draw knows when to shift attention shift directions knows when enough is enough mm. knows like has, has a sense for pushing into extreme and excess and when that excess is no longer effective. Um, mm. cause excess is extremely effective when it still feels excessive, but when you yeah. are fully dissociated and numb, it's no longer excess anymore. It's no longer effective anymore. And yeah, like the, the, the project feels so tight and so clean. It's a long record. It is. And yeah. you get each track is quite discreet and like really fully formed. It feels like um Yeah, it feels like I don't I don't need it to be filth. I don't need it to be as noisy and as aggressive because um it's been refined in a in a positive way for me. Like it's been given more dynamic borders that allow it to still be filthy, but also kind of surreptitiously can get under the skin of, like, your average, like, FM rock listener and then they (laughs) discover what it's about and they're like, oh, goddammit.
0: Yes. Do you remember how you discovered swans?
1: Uh... (sighs) I I knew about swans in high school. I mean, I I went to high school in the early aughts. I graduated high school in the 2005. I knew about swans in high school. Um, I knew I loved the filth cover, but I knew that I couldn't at the time, like really uh, sit with that harsh of a noise. Mm -hmm. Um, I I felt it so deeply all like, in my body and in my sort of mind at the time in high school that I actually couldn't do the sort of homeopathic like is like thing that I think a lot of people who are attracted to aggressive music, um, Mm. and, and noise music do, or they see themselves in the sound. I, I couldn't see, I, I didn't want to see, um, the sound as it lived in me already. Like I just wanted to not feel that anymore.
0: <laughs> uh huh. Um, yeah, totally. So
1: I knew about it and I was into it and I knew that like, I, I think I knew somehow that I would come back, I would come back to it eventually. And then in my early twenties, um, you know, my partner at the time was like, come to Swan shows, come to Swan shows. You're going to love it. And I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> and I went and yeah, I freaking loved it. And that really got me back into um yeah, I was in a way like kind of a getting back into organized noise and getting back into like just overwhelming music, um sonically overwhelming music. And yeah, I think I've seen maybe four Swan shows since then, uh since like 2012 or something. Um mm. and I was like, yeah, I and I and I understand intrinsically like this was not for me at the time and I know exactly why. And there I, there's no shame for me in that. And it's totally, at uh, the time in which I found it was exactly when I needed to find it again. And, um, yeah, I mean, dude's got his problems. Things got their problems, but yeah. like, as far as the sound itself goes, I get it. And like, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense for me. And, I couldn't. I was trying to think, like I said, I was trying to find the thing that represents aggression and heaviness and crushingness for this sort of set of albums for this podcast. And um, I couldn't. I couldn't do something that was like noisier. I still needed something that's like somewhat organized and still has like lyrical structure. And uh, I guess that's still kind of how I am to a certain degree. I really, I still need balance even when things are really, really heavy. So, yeah.
0: So you mentioned you wanted to bring something crushing to the table amongst these three releases. Why is that a big facet of your i don't know (laughs) your interests in Mm. music like what is it about that you know what's what's the allure there
1: what is the allure there uh it is maybe it kind of goes back to what we were talking about when we were talking about low frequencies and being in the body and even pressure um you know having something force you into your body um is both ecstatic and terrifying um being confronted with like the smallness of your body but also the bigness in which you feel it really really reinforces my sense of place in the world like it's like having a weighted blanket like (laughs) like (laughs) it's having a thunder shirt like um you know having thus now embarked on a a, a trail of listening, of training my listening into a a place of pretty high sensitivity, uh, that can be exhausting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I need to be bludgeoned into smallness again or into the ground or something. It like regrounds me. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think like music... I mean, it's a very emotional medium, um, and the ways in which we perceive sound, uh, operates us on, operates on us in so, 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 so many ways like that we can't even really articulate. I mean, especially with language. And so having something crushing in the face of like reality, which is crushing capitalism, which is crushing, um, inequity, which is crushing a pandemic, which is crushing. <laughs> right. Like you just, you know, uh, maybe it is time for a little bit of the homeopathic, like, like on like, uh, to just ground us in where we are, where we actually are. Um, uh, which is real. So yeah, that's, it's, it's super important to me. It shows up in my work a lot. I think, um, And then sometimes when I listen back to things, I'm like, girl, that's not as heavy as you thought it was. (laughs) Like you thought you were so, so hardcore and here you are singing. So (laughs) Uh, sometimes it's maybe in my head. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I guess it's hard, isn't it? Um, When suddenly you're no longer in the emotional headspace that you were when generating it. And so there's like a. I don't know. Maybe there's a weight that was there that then isn't there when you're sort of at a temporal distance from it.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think that's really... I mean, as a composer, um, yeah, there's there's still catharsis in composing. Um, mm. Yeah, that's still real. Maybe not for everyone, but it's still real for me, so...
0: This has been awesome thank you so much for talking through your new record three important records as well it's been great to have you thank you
1: thank you so much for having me i hope um i hope i made some semblance of sense
0: (laughs) (laughs) plenty um thank you and to everyone listening i'll see you next time goodbye